Father in heaven, thank you for the time today that you've given us to delve into Romans 6. I pray that it will correct our wrong thinking uh, and encourage us as we continue to fight the, fa- um, fight the way through to the end um, and hold to the faith and live a holy life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, mention faith in the prayer. Uh, at the heart of the Christian faith is a concept called grace. I don't think any of you will be strangers to that concept. Uh, and grace is what you think it means. It means undeserved favour. So what Christianity proclaims to us is that at a certain point in history, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God makes his grace known to sinners, you and me. And he says to us, if you place your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. Where once you deserve death, I'll give you life. Where you deserve condemnation, I'll give you vindication. Instead of my curse, you will receive my blessing, both in this life and in the life to come. Because on judgment day, when you face me and I judge you because of your works, you will have nothing to answer for. All your sin was nailed to the cross of Christ. You bore it in your place. And that really is the great wonder of the gospel for us. God, in his grace, no longer counts our sins against us. And instead, he gives us his righteousness to wear as our own, uh, such that when we face him, all he sees is Christ. But of course, the problem with grace is its implications. And you'll know this if you go out and you do walk up on campus um, or you're evangelizing one of your friends. Because when we come to Jesus, God's grace doesn't just forgive some of our sins. It forgives them all. And it's not just the sins that we've done in the past, but it's the ones that we will do in the future as well. And so as you describe grace to your friends, they're kind of like, hang on, let me get this straight. Everything? Everything. Like like everything, like even that, yeah, even that sin, completely gone. Oh, okay, and, and what about now? Completely forgiven. It begs the question for us, right? Does God's grace now mean that I can sin? I'm going to be forgiven, right? And I think this is a reasonable question because think about this for a moment. What would you do if sometime later today the government decided that they would no longer issue speeding fines? Speeding limit still exists, but there are now no more consequences for breaking it. They'd ignore the speed cameras, they'd pull their police patrols, they'd cancel all the tickets. And this is like, for somebody who has a whole bunch of speeding tickets, this is like the gospel, right? <laughs> Blessed freedom. But what would you do as you drove home today? You don't need to worry anymore, right? It doesn't matter. Like, you see the 60 sign, but 60? <laughs> no, 100. Let's go hard, <laughs> right? If grace means no more consequences, then isn't God just giving us a license to sin? I mean, if God's promise of forgiveness is as absolute as he says it is, and he will not punish me for the wrong things I do now, then what's stopping me from walking out of this door and having sex with who I want to have sex with, treating people the way that I want to treat them, taking what I want, lying, stealing, swearing, hating, judging? I mean, it's a reasonable question, isn't it? Does God's grace that amazing thing that pardons me from all guilt, does it give me a license to sin? And this is the question that Paul is asking in today's passage. And he does that by addressing two misunderstandings of grace. One in verse 1, and then the second in verse 15. And the way that he, he answers those misunderstandings is the same. He does it in a three-part thing. He states the reason why people think they can sin. He then refutes that reasoning and shows us why it's wrong. And then thirdly, having corrected our reasoning, he calls us to a right response. And what we're going to see is that Paul's answer to both those misunderstandings is the same. Does grace mean we can sin? 
by no means. It's actually the strongest way you can say something in the Greek when it comes to saying no. It's sort of like a, are you crazy? Or are you out of your mind? That's impossible. And what he says to us is, is grace doesn't give us license to sin. And the reason for that is because sin is no longer our master. And therefore we should stop sinning. So we're going to have a look at both those reasons, one after the other. The first reason is, why should we sin? Well, verse 1 to 14, because God will forgive me. Now, Paul asks there in verse 1, why don't we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the reason he would ask such a question is because of what he's just said in chapter 5. So listen to what he says. This is from verse 20 in chapter 5. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's actually here that we see the power of God's grace. Because wherever sin happens, grace happens more. It's sort of like for any of those who play soccer, for example, Ben or myself, right? Every grass stain, or because you're going to roughly tan this boy, every food stain or sweat stain, nappy sand oxy action is going to be there to wipe it off. No matter where the dirt happens, it will be washed white as snow. And so knowing this, what we figure is that, well, because grace will always be there to conquer sin, then we might as well keep sinning. In fact, we should make sure that we do, because that means that grace will increase and, and increase to God's glory. And the reality is, as much as we might think this is just ridiculous, we all do this. Yeah. In those times when we face temptations to sin and we give in, who hasn't justified their actions in the back of their mind by saying, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but it's okay. God will forgive me anyway. And then some of us, we actually take that justification out of the moments of, of real testing and we extend them and make them a life philosophy. I'll spend my 20s having a good time and then once I've indulged my sinful desires, I'll settle down, I'll repent and I'll get serious about my faith. I have friends who've said exactly that to me. And then some people, they take it even further, they take it beyond their 20s and they plan to repent on their deathbed. They live the life of sin and they figure they can catch it at the end and claim God's grace. Uh, some famous poets for you, Heinrich Hein, in the 1700s, he's famous for saying, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. And then another one, a century later, W.H. Auden said this, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Something about poets, right, which is a good thing that most of you are going to become teachers. But I think these two quotes capture the heart of this wrong attitude towards grace. We presume upon grace. And we think that we can act any way we like because God will forgive me. That's his job. But that sort of attitude is wrong. And it's a misunderstanding of the grace in which we stand. And so Paul in verse 2 moves to refute it. And what does he say there in verse 2? Should we keep sinning? Well, he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What it tells us is that we have died to sin. It is dead to us. And what do you do when somebody is dead to you? Well, you put up your hand and say, please, and then you have nothing to do with them. So what Paul is telling us to do is to channel our teenage girl at this point, right? We are dead to sin. Now, that might be a bit of a surprise to those of you who think that sin is permissible. But look at what Paul says to explain his reasoning here in verse 3. He asks us a question. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And what Paul is doing here is he's drawing our attention to our union with Christ. You see, when we become a Christian, we're united to Christ in such a way that our destiny is now irrevocably tied to his. And so close is that union that what happens to him also happens to us. And that's everything. His death, his resurrection, his rule in heaven, whatever promises God made to him, the the inheritance that he's given, the eternal love and favor that God bestows upon him, all of those things that are Jesus's are now ours. And the particular aspect that Paul is highlighting here is Jesus' death. He says that when we were baptized into Jesus, we were baptized into his death. So we shared his burial. We were sort of like in the coffin with him, if you want to think of it like that. It's kind of a creepy thought, right? But it's the best creepy thought that you can have. Because if we share in Christ's death, then all of the benefits and all of the outworkings of that death, all that applies to us as well as Jesus. So have a look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That that term there at the beginning of verse 6, old self, it literally means old man. Now, your old man is dead. Not what you're thinking. What is it talking about? It's talking about your existence in Adam. Remember back to chapter 5 last week. All of human history could be summarized by the actions of two men. Adam, the old man, whose sin subjugated us to the powers of sin and death. And then there was Jesus, the new man, whose righteousness defeated those powers. And it's here that we see how he does it. Because when he is crucified, he takes our old man, our sinful Adamic existence, subjected to sin and death, and he takes that man and he crucifies it with him on the cross. And he breaks the power that sin has over us so that we are now no longer enslaved to sin. Because, and we saw this in verse 7, the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, one of the reasons I'm looking forward to dying is my hex death. Now, come, come with me here. It sounds messed up, but you'll understand in a moment. I've done two degrees now, right? Do you know how much debt I now have with the government? It's like $100,000, right? Bible college is not cheap. And I'm just kind of sitting there going, when am I ever going to have the sort of money I need to pay that back? And so as somebody who doesn't like debts outstanding, it just sort of sits in the back of my mind and, and weighs there. Like I'm always conscious that I have money that I need to give to somebody else. And do you know what happens when you die? Debt cancelled. The one who has died has been set free from hex debt. And I'll finally have some peace. And what Paul is saying here is that the only way to throw off the power of sin, that thing that weighs down your thoughts, dominates your every action, is to die to it. And that is why, by the way, self-help books are useless to you and life coaches, and rehab programs, and your self-discipline and hard work ethic. Because none of those things actually challenge the power that sin holds over your life. Sure, you might see some outward improvement, you might stop drinking, you might stop looking at porn, but you'll remain a slave to sin. All you've managed to do is find a way of living under that slavery that stops you from feeling morally unsettled. The reality is that you are a lifelong slave to sin. And then the only way, therefore, you can escape that lifelong slavery is to die. That is your only release. 
And so if you want true change or deep change or lasting change, it's not going to be found in a self-help book. It's not going to be the 12 steps to do this or that. It's not going to be the seven great ways to make yourself a better person. You need to die. And that is why you need Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, this has happened. And it's so important to remember this, especially for those of us who are struggling with besetting sins, those sins that just keep coming back to bite us in the butt. Because in those moments, the devil will lie to you. He'll say something like this, Ah, I see you've done it again. That's not surprising. You're not strong enough. Sin still rules you. You'll never change. And if after years of struggling with the same sins and feeling like you've made no progress, with no evidence to the contrary, you'll start to believe him. But Paul says that is not us anymore. Have a look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so remember, that which applies to Christ applies to us as well, without exception. And so we see in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is true even when your experience screams otherwise. Because the difference between those who are in Adam and those who are in Jesus is not the presence of sin, it's the power of sin. And this distinction is actually really important to understand, particularly as younger Christians, as people who haven't been around as long, because you can fool yourself into thinking that you shouldn't have sin at all. The reality is, as we're still in our sinful bodies, we aren't going to throw it until Christ returns. Remember those two stages from last week. You've got justification and glorification. At justification, sin's power is removed. And it's only at our glorification, that final wonderful day when Christ returns, is our sin's presence removed. So you've got to have that distinction in your head. So what that means is we still need to fight it. But the advantage that we have now, and it's a winning advantage is that who we are in Jesus now means that we have the power to conquer our sin. What was a pipe dream has now become possible. And that leads us to his response in verses 12 to 14. What does Paul say? Well, he says something very simple. He says, therefore, do not submit to sin. Instead, present your members as instruments of righteousness. So let's have a look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passion. So there's his command. Don't submit to it. Here's how you do it. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So there's the don't. Here's the do. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, that word instrument is actually better translated weapon, which just makes fighting sin that much cooler, right? It's as if you're in the king's army. And what Paul says is, use your sword in service of the king, not in service of the enemy. It's sort of like Lord of the Rings, you know, you have my sword and my bow and my axe. What are they saying when they throw their weapons down on the table in front of Frodo? Well, they're saying, I am yours to command. If I can protect your life in any way, then I will do it. Because I'm presenting myself to you entirely and completely as a weapon in your cause. And so we are to do the same thing. We are not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And if we're to do that, then what we need to do is we need to stop using our mortal bodies to indulge sin. And then secondly, we need to start using them to be righteous. And so I want to make two observations about that presenting 
the first is you've got to do both. It's been my observation that most Christians try to combat sin by the not presenting of our members. It's entirely negative. It's like, I won't do that, I won't do that, oh, I'm not going to do that. But if you don't fill that void with something positive, the positive presenting, then what happens is our habits will fill it for us. And generally, it's the sin that we're trying to avoid. So what you've got to do is you've got to replace the unwholesome use of your weaponry with wholesome use. If you want a healthy diet, it's not enough to stop eating bad stuff. You've got to start eating good stuff as well. There's no neutrality there. You're either serving God or you're serving sin. That's the first thing. You've got to do both. But second, notice that what occurs um, between the not presenting and the presenting. It's an attitude change, isn't it? We have to present ourselves as those who have been brought from death to life. Now, I've glossed over it until now, but have a look back up there at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so this union with Christ, we don't just share in his death, we share in his life as well. Now, that hasn't physically happened yet. We're still encumbered by this body of sin, but we know it will happen. We've been united with Christ, and that means that his life must, it will follow death. And so therefore, in verse 10, just as Christ's life is now committed to the service of God, so too is ours. And if we don't understand this, then we'll fall into the false reasoning that we saw at the beginning of the passage, that forgiveness is God's job, and that it's his blessing that just has to happen because of grace. But the reality is, it is a blessing only for those who have been brought from death to life. And in that movement of death to life, what has happened is we have changed dominions. We are no longer under sin. We are under grace. And so if you think you can go on sinning, then you have misunderstood who you are. And you've reversed the logic. And so what Paul says to us is, don't keep sinning so that grace will abound. What he says is, grace has abounded, so stop sinning. So that's the first reason. The second reason we should sin, apparently, is in verses 15 to 23. And the reason is that we have been set free from the law. And again, Paul asks the question this time in verse 15, and he says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now, one of the things that's been sitting in the background of Paul's argument has been the function of the Mosaic law. And contrary to what we would assume, even though the law reveals God's will and he affirms it to be good in chapter 7, it was never intended to be the means by which we were saved. In fact, its primary purpose was to expose humanity's sin, not save, it, save us from it. You can actually see this in chapter 3, verse 20, if you head back over there. Chapter 3, verse 20, what does he say? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. We see it again in chapter 5, verse 20 this time. The law came in to increase the trespass. And so that's why it's necessary for us to be released from the law, because so long as we are under the law, we will remain under the reign of sin. And that's precisely what Jesus does for us. Because when we die with him, we die to the law such that we are no longer under law, but under grace. And this is where the second reason to sin comes in. Because people start to think then, all right, okay, cool. If I'm no longer under law, then I'm no longer obligated to follow it. And so therefore I can do what I want. 
And even though that logic is faulty, it does sort of make sense, right? Because what's the first thing you do when you're released from a law? Well, you go and do the thing that you weren't allowed to do, right? So like in the last four weeks, some of you have heard about it, I've been doing like a pseudo-elimination diet. Now, it's been a really sorry excuse for a pseudo-elimination diet, right? Because I, all I could not have is wheat and some garlic and some onions. So I've basically been able to have everything. And yet for some reason I can still have sourdough bread and so everything's just a bit confusing for me. But you know the first thing I did when I stopped that? This has happened on Friday. I got a whole bunch of dumplings. And I sat down, I just, give me some wheat, just, just, just cram it in there, I'm gonna have some. And this is what happens when, when Christians here were no longer under the law, we're no longer on a diet, they think, I can have as many dumplings as I want. I do what I want, baby, I'm under grace. But that's not how it works. Paul says to us, what are you talking about? Have you completely lost your mind? There's that strong no word at the end of verse 15. He says to us, being lawless doesn't mean that we can be lawless. He gives us two reasons why that's the case. The first is, he tells us that the one we obey is our master. And you see this in verse 16. What does he say? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Now this is a basic principle, right? You see this everywhere in society. You go to an army base, you know who the commanding officer is because everyone is saluting him. You go to an office in the CBD, you know who the manager is because that's the one that everyone else is giving reports to. You go to the shopping centre, you know whose kids are whose because the parents are giving them instructions and their kids are the ones that are listening to them, at least in theory. And so you see this principle rolling around everywhere. And so Paul asks the Romans, who is your master? And in typical preacher fashion, he doesn't just wait for an answer, he actually tells them. He says in verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. So essentially he's saying the same thing as he did in the first half of the passage. You've changed masters. So the fact that you would even consider thinking about continuing in sin is as ridiculous as saluting random pedestrians. What have they missed? Well, they've missed that when you're freed from the law, you aren't just freed into a moral vacuum. It's not like you were enslaved and then you were freed in an absolute sense to do whatever you want. See, Paul, he never talks about Christian freedom like that. He only ever talks about Christian freedom in a qualified sense. We're freed from something to be enslaved to something else. And so paradoxically, his perspective is that everybody is always a slave. And in verse 20, if you're a slave to sin, then the only thing that you're free from, have a look there, is righteousness. And then back up in verse 18, but the moment that you're freed from sin, you become a slave to righteousness. Now there's an interesting thought. Who's ever thought of themselves as a slave to righteousness? Oh, it's my burden. I just can't stop doing good for people. And yet this is Paul's point. You're either a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you're a slave to righteousness, which leads to life. So all of us, every single one of you, has a master. And you're ruled by one of two masters only, sin or righteousness. And what Paul says to the Romans is, your master is righteousness. And what he says to you, if you're a believer, is your master is righteousness. So stop sinning. And that's the first reason, then, that the logic is faulty. 
Because even though we're no longer under law, our master is not sin any longer. It's righteousness. Second reason that the logic is faulty is because of where sin leads. Now, what Paul does here is he draws our attention to the fruit of our actions. Have a look there at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, and then a bit further on, look what he says in verse 21. What fruit were you getting? Things that you were ashamed of. Things that lead to death. And then he compares the pair. Have a look there at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then, of course, the famous verse that Colin Buchanan made very popular, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The thing to get as we consider where our sin leads, we, we need to stop thinking about sin as junk food. You can't just have a bag of chips or a chocolate bar or a dumpling and then think, so long as you're exercising, it's okay. Because sin is not a sometimes food. Sin is poison. It's a slow-acting, long-lasting poison that does not leave your system. And so if it keeps filling your stomach, you will die. And so in contrast, righteousness is sort of like your superannuation. If you consistently keep adding to it, not only do you get that warm, fuzzy feeling of financial security, but one day when God retires you, you get to cash in. What does it say there? Righteousness is the fruit that leads to sanctification, that is to say, our holiness. There's nothing to be ashamed of there. There's no rotten apples in the bunch that will completely total it. It is wholesome, because holiness is wholesomeness. And one day it will lead to eternal life. It ends in a place that you want to be. Sin takes you to the one place that you don't want to be. So how do we respond? Well, Paul has already mentioned it in verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. See, our response here is the same as the first half of the passage. Don't submit to sin. Slight difference, though. We present our members not as weapons this time, but as slaves. Now, I mentioned before, how weird is it to think about members as enslaved to good? I have that image in my mind, you know, the pickpocket who just can't help pickpocketing. He's just talking to somebody who just lifts their wallet out. It's almost as if we do the opposite. When we're talking, we can't help but put money in people's pockets. We can't help but people give, give people hugs as we walk around the place. It's almost as if we are slaves and we can't help it. And yet that is how we are to present our members to God. So how do we do that? Well, I think there's two things going on in this passage that we see. One of it is attitudinal. It's the way that we think. And then second, it's practical. It's the way that we present. And so what I want to do is I just want to give you some suggestions as to how you might be able to live under grace and not under sin and law. So let's have a think about the attitudinal means um, of, of responding to this passage. The thing that we need to be doing is we need to be cultivating in ourselves an awareness of who our master is, such that when we are confronted with the opportunity or the desire <coughs> of sin, we don't salute it. So some suggestions. Um, one of them is to work it into your daily prayer time. 
Now, I don't want to get all legalistic here and say you must do this or must do that because we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. But there is a reality that when Jesus teaches us to pray, as part of the prayer, he says, give us today our daily bread, the implication being that we will be praying on a daily basis. And I think one of the things that you can do as you pray in the morning, um, particularly in the morning, uh, is what I would call daily consecration. Uh, it sounds really weird and trippy and, and Catholic, but it's not. Um, it's basically just in your prayer to God saying, God, thank you for this day. I pray that I will use it in your service, which is really what the Lord's Prayer is teaching us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so really all you're doing is acknowledging in prayer to God as you prepare yourself for the day that you are his, not sins. I'm offering myself as the one who has been killed in Christ and then made alive in Christ. I'm now dead to my sin. I now live to my God. So that's an example of a way that you can slowly start to reprogram your mind to be thinking about who you are and what you are to be doing. Uh, the second is sort of the opposite. It's regular repentance. Uh, and the reason this is important is because it continually reminds you that the sins that you are doing are not the things that you should be doing. Now remember, we're under grace, and I'll talk about this in a moment. Uh, what I don't want us to start thinking is that, you know, we have to do this or we have to do that. Uh, but this is a means by which we remind ourselves that when we present our members as, as instruments or weapons to sin, we are doing something entirely uh, contrary to who we are. And so by repenting, what we're acknowledging is, hey, uh, this is not how I should have done it. Uh, it reminds us, again, to be presenting our members as weapons of righteousness. So that's the attitude. That's just some examples of how you might be able to work that in. Um, let's think about the practical, our presentation. Well, one of the things that I think can be really overwhelming for Christians is that we've got so many sins floating around the place, where do we start? You know, I've got pride over here, I've got envy over here, I've got sexual temptation over here, I'm greedy over here, I'm really angry over here. And you hear this passion like, oh no, okay, I've died to sin, I've, I'm, I'm alive to God, I've just got to can it all. And so one of the things that might be helpful for you if you're overwhelmed by all of the things that are before you is to just to focus on one sin. Just think about what is the one thing that I can stop presenting in my members? Is it my hands as I'm greedy? Is it my eyes as I'm envious? Uh, I can stop presenting and then actually start presenting it for righteousness rather than sin. Um, and to do that, let's have a think about the, the ceasing to present for sin and then the presenting for righteousness. I've got a very old book here that I want to make you aware of. You can get a modernized um, English version of it. It's called The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Really short. It's probably one of those complicated books you'll ever read. Um, and basically what it's talking about, mortification just means killing. How do you kill your sin? And one of the things that he says later on in his book as he's giving some practical tips is this. You have to bear with the old language, but I think it's sort of fun. So we're going to go on a bit of an adventure here, right? He says, Consider what occasions, what advantages thy distemper hath taken to exert and put forth itself, and watch against them all. The distemper is the sinful temptation, right? So in other words, have a look around yourself and figure out when it emerges its head. Look out for when that happens. And he says, consider what ways, what companies, what opportunities, what studies, what businesses, what conditions have at any time given or do usually give advantages to those tempers. So in other words, when do you sin? If it's envy, if that's the thing that you're struggling with, when do I envy people the most? Is it when I'm hanging with my school friends? 
Is it when I go to the shops, when I look around and see people? Is it when I'm hanging with a particular friend because they live in a really nice house? Because that's the time when I sin. All right, so I know that that's when it's going to happen. If it's sexual temptation, it might be in the evening when you're in bed and everything just kind of settles down in your mind and you just lose all sense of control. If, is it anger? If it's anger, it might be when you're tired. And so you've got to identify the moments when you are most likely to present your members to evil and go, those are the moments that I'm going to be on guard. And instead, then what you do is you think about in those moments, how can I be presenting my members to be doing righteousness rather than sin? What good can I do as a slave to righteousness to fill that vacuum? So those are some examples of what you might want to do in terms of living to Christ, dying to sin. As I finish, I just want to make us aware of the reality of grace that undergirds all of this. I said at the beginning that grace seemed to have a problem, and that problem was it gave us a license to sin. But the reality is grace is our only solution. Because no means, no other means can get us there to conquer our sin. We already saw that before. No, nothing can break the power of sin, no law, because all law does is it binds us to sin. It evokes sin. We'll see that next week in chapter 7. And all this to say is that if you are still a slave, the only way you can get out is to die. And law, other options, self-help, self-discipline, they all say you are still a slave and you need to get out. But what grace says is, I'm already taking you out and you're now to act as though you are no longer a slave. And so the picture that you need to have in your mind as a Christian is not that you were chained up and that God comes along and breaks your chains, but now you have to work out how to get out of the prison. What grace tells us is that God has taken us out of the prison and put us in a mansion, and now our job is to not walk back into the prison. Remember Romans 5, we are under a state of grace. We are under the new man, Jesus. And so that's why I've said those things before, they're just suggestions. They're not laws, they're not rules that you have to tick to enable you to escape. They're the means to enable you to remain who you are, who you've made to be in Christ. And so it's not that we are unrighteous now, seeking to be righteous, seeking to attain to a level that we have not yet attained to. It's that God has made us that person, and now we are to live like it rather than descend down into the depths that we once were. It's an attitude shift, and it's really complicated. But once you capture it, Grace makes sense and moral effort and those things that we do to put sin to death are put in their proper place. So that's the thing I just want us to understand as we finish. God's grace, it frees us from sin. We have died with Christ. Sin is no longer our master and we can conquer it. And as in light of that, then I'll finish and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that Jesus has died. And that the death he died, he died once for all. And now that the life he lives, he lives to God. We thank you so much that in coming to faith, you united us with him. And now we share his destiny. Thank you that we too can now say no to sin and live righteously and bear fruit that leads to eternal life. I pray that we will delight in the freedom that the gospel gives us. That we will delight in being enslaved to a good master. And that you will bless us and enable us to remain that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.